turning with me once again to Ephesians chapter 5. As we examine with the Lord's gracious help this morning, Ephesians 5 and verses 21 to 33. And we will read and make reference to verses there as we preach the word of God this morning. So keep your Bibles open, we the people of the book. When Adam and all of mankind in Adam fell, fell from holiness, righteousness, goodness and glory, in a strange and mysterious providence of God fell into sin, Adam and we in Adam lost much, lost everything you could say, certainly lost our highest good. Losing that precious fellowship that man had with God. Lost. The holiness wherewith we were created in Adam. Lost. The righteousness that would come forth from that holiness that God had created with Adam. Lost. And becoming sinners, innocency was lost. Purity was lost. Spiritual life in the soul was lost. The perfect image of God wherewith we were created, defaced and disfigured. And access to the tree of life, barred, blocked, withheld. And all in all, all of these things, and we could go into many other details as well, but these are the main matters that we have before us because of our union with Adam in Adam and by sin our unity our union with God was broken and just like our forefather Adam we by nature flee from God's presence in our guilt fleeing from him and we hide in our guilt and we attempt to cover up our shame by our own sinful efforts and so it is for every generation that is born and goes forth outside of the gracious work of God fleeing from the only solution to their sins which is the Lord and fleeing into more sin And even while you sit in the church and even while you take your place in the pew, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, you can sit present in the house of God and yet in your soul and in your heart, flee from the Lord. Everything looks so fine and correct on the outside, but on the inside, there is a sinning and a shameful Adam fleeing from the presence of the Lord. But as you know yourself from your own uh, teaching and reading of Genesis 3, That where Adam and Eve, they fled, it was God who mercifully and graciously went after Adam. He went after mankind, and it says that three simple words, 
Genesis 3 and verse, verse 9. Where art thou? Man was not looking for God. Man was not interested in God. But God was merciful and gracious to Adam. And ever since it has pleased the Lord God to repeat these words. To repeat words that would call out to sinful man and woman and boy and girl. But the Lord calling after you. As you flee from the presence of God. As you flee from the gospel of Christ. As he continues to call out to his own lost people who were lost in Adam. And he calls out to them. How do we see him calling out to them? Genesis 3 and verse 9. Where art thou? But also in his appearances. In the visions and dreams that he gave to his people at various and sundry times in the scriptures. And those ways and means being now stopped. But also through the words of the law. Even the words of the law and the words of the sacrificial services that we see in Leviticus, etc. The Lord speaks to mankind of his sin and of his need to turn, to return through the words of the prophets. And as we read in Hebrews 1 and verse 1, and hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So through the words of Christ, through the Gospels, and through the apostles, the servants of Christ, and through the servants of the Lord preaching the Gospel ever since, so by the way of the Great Commission, the Lord still says, Adam, where art thou? And draws you, everyone, into his house, to hear the gospel of Christ. Because the Lord is that diligent shepherd. He's not a hired man. He is the shepherd of his sheep. And he personally and diligently seeks to save that which was lost in Adam. And yet the Lord also calls unto mankind, unto Adam through the only two institutions that we still have from before the fall. Having lost so much in the fall, and yet there are two things that it pleased God to grant to mankind in general, and especially to his church. And that is the weekly Sabbath, one day in seven unto the Lord. And secondly, marriage between one man, one man and one woman. So we could say the covenantal Sabbath and the covenant of marriage. And as we understand in chapters 3 and 4 of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, that yes, there is a rest uh, that remains to the people of God, and that word is a Sabbath rest, Sabbatismos. There is a Sabbath keeping to the New Testament church of God, yes. But more especially what is said, and that's just verse 9 of chapter 4, but more especially in those, verse, those, those two chapters, 3 and 4, is that gospel promise that there is a rest unto those that find their rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the Sabbath is a, is a foretaste of that eternal rest for sinners who hear the command of Christ, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. <coughs> and so marriage also, having considered that rest, that eternal rest, that gospel rest, <coughs> 
as indicated in our Sabbath keeping, we see something in marriage also. As we considered, marriage goes back all the way to the innocency in Eden. But what we read in Ephesians 5, that marriage also looks forward to what we say in theology, the consummation of redemption, the fulfillment of all that has been done in and through and by Christ to the glory of Christ and the return of Christ, that eternal state of glory, and therefore to specifically to that sinless, holy and impeccable union, eternal union between Christ and his church. Again, that looks forward uh, with eyes of yearning for the people of God to that union that they will yet have with Christ, having even now a foretaste of that by the rebirth and God's ways with them. But in between these two points of time, state of innocence and state of glory, here we are in the estate of sin and misery. And yet God gives marriage still, uh, not just as a clarion call of the gospel, which it is for those who give it understanding, but because it is a picture of Christ and his church, and it is good for the church. It's good that marriage is done. There are many reasons that we can consider it is better to marry than to burn. It's a place of cleanness that a man and a woman can come together and enjoy the privileges of marriage without sinning. That there is a place that has been set apart by God for the protection of the precious uh, soul and emotions of a man and of a woman. Uh, the safest place for a man and a woman on, on so many of these levels uh, within the marriage. But coming now and looking back at the, the greater and spiritual picture of Christ and his church, even, even now we're, we're seeing this union together of two separate individuals coming together and being united in marriage. Again, that understanding of Christ and his church, as I've mentioned, but also the church is made up of individuals. So where we think of the union of Christ and his church, the bride and, uh, or the bridegroom and the bride, Christ and the church uh, coming together, and where we think of a marriage as a, is a, is a lifelong union, that, that this is an eternal union between Christ and the church. And there is none more faithful than Christ the faithful witness. And he, as we've considered pledging of the troth, of, of pledging of faithfulness one to another, he is the faithful witness. He is faithful to his church. He has none other church. He has one bride for whom he bled and died and whom he ever liveth to make intercession for. He has this one bride. But in that union that Christ has with his church, he also has that union individually with every single member of that church, spiritually understood. There is that union, a faithful union. And as we'll look into some more details, there is that care and that protection and that teaching and that love and that embracing, which will never cease for those who are to be found in that gracious marriage covenant, the covenant of grace with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that commencing, of course, when the Holy Ghost works saving faith in the soul of a sinner. But before we continue uh, with the theology on that matter, as we've entered in, we've started the main course before we've 
come to the starter, as it were, we will go back and examine in the same order that Paul the Apostle does. He begins with something called practical theology. He gives practical advice that's couched in the truth of the word. There's doctrine and there's the living out of the doctrine. We see Paul in uh, teaching us in these verses. And all of which is helpful not only to Willem and Naomi, but to all married couples, those who would hope to be in the state of marriage at some point. And as the Lord is pleased to help us this morning, let us consider something, having to miss over many details, lest we be here still at three o'clock in the afternoon. The great mystery of marriage. That's the title, The Great Mystery of Marriage. And in four points then, firstly, the great leveller. The great leveller in verse 21 In spite of the differences that exist between men and women, between a husband and a wife, both are to submit to each other in the fear of God. Secondly, the submissive wife. The submissive wife we see in verses 22 to 24. We see that wives are exhorted to be as submissive to their husband as the church is to Christ. Thirdly, the loving husband. We see that in more verses, verses 25 to 29. The husbands are to love their wives with an unconditional and a self-sacrificial love. It's not about the husband anymore. It's about the wife, about the husband and wife. And they are to have that love as Christ loves the church. These are high standards. These are high exhortations. And then fourthly and finally, merely touching upon these truths, the abiding union. Uh, The union of man and wife, the marriage of a husband and wife, points to, as I've already mentioned somewhat in the introduction, to the spiritual union of Christ and his church. Here we have before us a spiritual picture even a spiritual mirror that we look at these and we see something else with with biblical understanding of what we have before us so firstly then we'll consider the great leveler we see in verse 21 of ephesians 5 submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of god now admittedly verse 21 is is the last part of a long sentence Paul the apostle as a theologian he liked long sentences he could pack much into long sentences and he did so verse verse 15 to verse 21 is is long once one long sentence <clears throat> and he completes that sentence which is a truth and which does lead on to the the remainder of the chapter And especially when we consider the role of male and female within a marriage, but of course it's speaking to all men and and all women at all times and in all places. And it says, wives, submit, sorry, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. There are clear differences between men and women. There are physical differences, emotional differences, mental differences, genetic differences. There are many differences and they were made to be different. Why were they made to be different? 
This seems to be like a novel doctrine to the world, but it's as old as Eden. Why were they made to be different? Because they were made to complement each other. There is to be a difference because the, the female has something the male does not have. The male has something the female doesn't have, as we see in so many different ways. And as both individuals with their own human characteristics and God-given personality, they have things, the one to give to the other, to help each other, to, to fulfill each other's lack, which is what the word complement means. It doesn't just mean saying a nice word. To complement, to, to, to complement each other. Now there are differences that we see between man and woman. And some of those differences are cultural. We might call them traditional. <clears throat> there, are, there are times that I know myself growing up, the, the men never stu- stood, stepped, uh, took a, f- a step into the kitchen. That was the domain of the woman. And so traditionally you might think, well, it's the woman who does all the cooking, the man doesn't cook, can't cook, won't cook. And if we look back at the biblical example, we see that both, uh, both Jacob and Esau were competent cooks. They could cook, they did cook. And so there are some things that are just cultural. You know, a man can physically turn on a particular machine or apparatus at home that normally his wife would touch. So that's not the issue, that's not built in. It's not as though man has a blind spot for a washing machine or whatever it is. He's able to do these things. But what does the Bible say about the role of men and women? What does the Bible say? Well, we do not get a list of do's and don'ts in the Scriptures concerning the role within a marriage of husband and wife. There are exhortations, and we're reading them today. There are other places that speak of, of a woman and of a wife and of a husband. But who does what? The individual roles and tasks are not strictly given. We have exhortations as in Ephesians 5. We have glorious examples as in Proverbs 31 regarding a woman. But what we do see are principles across the scriptures and by good and necessary consequence. We see this, that husbands are to provide and protect and women are to bear children and care. They're principles. God-given principles, that we actually see that physically and, and genetically that men are able to provide and protect. That women can bear and care. But the Apostle says there's one thing that should override all circumstances and even traditions in that way. It doesn't override them, doesn't destroy them, but underlies them, is a foundation to them all, that all be submitted one to another in the fear of God. Is that a general exhortation? Yes. In the context, it is also relevant to wives and husbands. And the fear of God is a wonderful thing. And you may think of the fear of God, you may think of that wrong fear. You may think of that fear of conviction of sin. You may think of fear understanding something of the wrath of God for your own corrupt wickedness. But the fear of God, we know, is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It is many other things mentioned in Proverbs and elsewhere. 
The fear of God is a, is a good thing. It's, it's a wonderful thing. It is not an angst for God. It's not a terror concerning God. But it is a godly fear that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, with everything that God has given you and who you are, that you would love him as he desires to be loved and as he desires to be worshipped. How it pleases him. And therefore it pleases God when we submit ourselves one to another in his fear. It pleases God when we're humble and meek. Why? Because place is then not given much to sinful pride. And sinful pride exalts the sinner and steals the glory of God. Pride, we know that expression, pride cometh before a fall. Pride is the reason for the fall. The pride of Adam in believing, willingly believing the lies of the serpent. Eve was deceived. But Adam wasn't. So pride exalts the sinner, denies God his glory. A pride-filled husband will not give due honor to his wife. He will not give unconditional love towards his wife. Because pride at its highest expression we call narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy. Selfishness taken to an extreme, self-centeredness. So much so that the, hard, the heart is hard, hard and cold to anyone else really. Unless they can be used, manipulated, taken advantage of. And a prideful wife will not give glory to God in how she treats her husband, in how she's submitting herself to her husband as to Christ. But on the contrary, we are to fear God and to submit ourselves one to another. If any, if God, if any are to be exalted, then it is God who does the exalting. It is our place to humble ourselves. It is our place to repent. It is our place to obey the command of God to all people, to all believers, especially to married couples, even newly married couples. The great leveller. Secondly, we see the submissive life as where this self-same truth is most especially applied to the woman and especially as regarding her relationship to the Lord as the bride, as the church in that way, and we will see that in verse 23. But listen to what the apostle exhorts us under the authority of the Holy Ghost. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Again, spoken to all women, to all wives, especially to Naomi Malvaik this morning. Wives, submit yourselves. And therefore we gladly and happily use that old-fashioned words of the of the vows and the plighting of troth in that there is to be obedience that there is to obedi obedience to obey honor love and serve her husband these are not old-fashioned ideas these are 
age-old biblical truths and not to be forgotten, not to be laid aside. Not to be spoken out because you've got feminists in the family or in your friendship, in your friends. But because it's the truth of God. And we see that here. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. There's a few things that we could say about this very briefly, having gone back to Genesis already. It is a creation ordinance. It goes back all the way from before the fall. And the Lord says in Genesis 2 and verse 18, as the triune God speaks within the Godhead, and the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And so a wife is on many levels a helper for her husband. She is a helper that is meet for her husband. Meet as in fitting, as in suitable, as in a perfect match for her husband before the fall. Sin has come in and, and made a mess of so much of a relationship and by God's kind providence, many benefits, many good things, many blessings have remained in Christian marriage. So a helper, a perfect match for her husband or for the man. And yet even before the fall, it wasn't right, it wasn't good that the man should be alone. And there's much that we could say about that. But a man, even after the fall, it's not good that he's alone. He needs to have his wife. He needs to have a wife and stick to her like Lou for his whole life. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Even in those vows that we've made together, we're not saying it's a bed of roses. We're not saying married life is going to be a honeymoon for the rest of your life. Supposing that you have a good honeymoon, of course. There are difficult times and there are good times. But it came from a time of innocency. It came from a time of holiness and goodness. And the Lord, it has pleased the Lord to continue that even now. And you need a wife. And on the other hand, a wife needs a husband because she needs a head. She needs a leader. She needs a protector. She needs a provider, as we will see in due course. To whom she can be submissive. So we have that creation ordinance that is still in existence. That a man needs a wife and a wife needs a man. Biological understanding. But secondly, we see that by a godly example. And there are many to be given. But I will limit it to two. And first, an actual example from the scriptures when we consider Sarah, the wife of Abraham. As a godly example, a godly wife who submitted herself to the headship of her husband. Does that mean she always agreed with him? Does that mean she couldn't give advice contrary to him? That's not what headship means. Headship is not tyranny. Submission does not mean a doormat. By any means. You can discuss matters that are contrary to your husband. And having given, used your God-given wisdom and knowledge, which may contradict, there will come a point where a decision has to be made. He is to make it. But you must prayerfully seek wisdom that you make the right decision and know the revealed will of God in making that decision. But Sarah submitted herself to the headship of her own husband. 
and Abraham. A submission. And we could even mention now uh, that you must be willing to stand up against the advice of your wife where you know that it's wrong. Uh, Abraham should have said no to Sarah regarding Hagar. He should have realized this is not good. This is not the Lord's will. And this is contrary to the promise of God who would give the promised seed through him and Sarah. But the scriptures reveal then coming back to the submission of the wife to the husband. The scriptures reveal that such a humble submission is a beautifying of the woman's soul. It is a, a sanctification, using that term very broadly. It is a, a, a purification of the woman's character. Because that's how God has made her. Not to be a loud-mouthed rebel. Peter explains this in 1 Peter chapter 3. You might want to turn with me to those verses. 1 Peter chapter 3. And the first six verses we'll read together. 1 Peter chapter 3. The Apostle Peter says this. A number of things and then he finishes his doctrine with this example of Sarah. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation, the behavior, the lifestyle of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement, any confusion or confounding. As our first example that we have of Sarah being exactly this woman, uh, by God's grace, that we see exhorted to Naomi this morning and to us all, especially to the women. But our second example is from our text itself. And from verse 24, so still in Paul's exhortation to women. And we see there that there is a comparison made between the wife and the church. The wife is an individual and the church of Christ. It says in verse 24, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. In everything. So it's not just partial submission. It's complete submission. And the church itself is to be submitted. It is to be humble. It is to be obedient to Christ. Well, that the church is so. The church is to obey his every word and not with lip service, not with cynicism, not with back chat but willingly from the heart. Because the church is to honor Christ. The church is to serve Christ. The church is to recognize Christ's authority 
and submit herself unto it. If the Bible says so, it is so. We will do what the Lord's word says. And it doesn't matter what, what preference that you have, what tradition you have. It is the word of God. Knowing this truth. As the Lord says that the traditions of man, what do they do? They put aside, they disannul, they ignore the commandments of God. So the honouring, the serving, the submitting to the authority, these are the biblical standards for a godly wife. To love, honour and obey her husband in all things, recognising his headship, recognising his authority, God-given authority, and submitting to that headship and authority. And such things are exhorted to wives for one very important reason. Because by nature, wives will not do this. Women, you are the daughters of fallen Eve. Eve was deceived and she was in the transgression. And you now have with Eve a fallen nature. Which naturally does the opposite of all that God commands. And so a wife can, at times... Even though she be well trained and she be godly, uh, she attempts to obey the word of God. She can try to dominate her husband, take away his headship and put hers in his place. She can even try to manipulate her husband as opposed to convince him and then leave the decision with him. She can be outright disobedient to her husband. She can dishonor her husband privately and publicly. But here is the challenge that we see from Paul. In so much that she is submitted to Jesus Christ, she is to be submitted to God. One reflects the other. Or one should exhort to the other. If you say that you know the grace of God, that the Lord has worked that faith in your soul, that you are looking unto Jesus, then you are to be submitted to your husband as you say that you are submitted unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who can say no a confess, personal confession of faith, but have made a profession that the Scriptures are true and the Reformed faith is true, and I believe it to be true, even then, having acknowledged the Lordship of Christ, maybe having not experienced the redeeming lordship of Christ, but having confessed the lordship of Christ in the same way, you are to be submitted to your husband. And there is much more to be said. And I don't normally take this many verses in one sermon, but we will move on with the Lord's help. And we'll leave that there. And especially now because the apostle spends more than twice as many verses upon men. And we could humorously say that men need more advice and more help but the truth is, men have more responsibility under God. There's more to be said to the husband than to the wife. But the wives must listen. Because being a help meet for your husband, Naomi, being a, a wife meet for your husband means helping him 
in his God-given capacity and his God-given functions, in his headship, in his leadership, in his being the teacher, uh, uh, the Bible teacher of the household. He needs that help and that support in all those roles, a help meet for him. Then the third point then, we've seen the great leveler, the submissive wife, thirdly, the loving husband. The loving husband. So again, the Lord speaks to all men. All men need to know this, especially to husbands, especially to Willem Malweig this morning. And once again, as we read these verses, reading from verse 25, really to the end of the chapter, but we could stop there in verse 31, as that block of doctrine about men. But just like with the women, this doctrine is Christ-centered. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ, which is true of everything. Creation is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Redemption is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, the future, eternity, it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. As is this doctrine to husbands. Firstly, we see, and again, we will miss out many points for the sake of time. But I trust we pick out the most important ones for Willem and for ourselves. Firstly, we see unconditional love in Ephesians 5 and verse 25. Paul writes, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. There's, there are two words that are used for love in the Greek New Testament. There are many more words in the Greek language, but in the New Testament, the Holy Ghost has used only two of them. And so one is, is a conditional love. Philao is the verb. Where we get the word file at the end. If you're a bibliophile, you love books. If you're an Anglophile, uh, you love the English or the English language. Filio is, is a conditional love. You love me, I love you. You're kind to me, I, I'm kind back to you. If someone does you a favor, you do them a favor. That's the idea of it. And it is, there's not necessarily a shallow love. It's the beginning of friendships. It's the maintaining of friendships. Oh, I've got to go over and help Harry. Oh, yeah, he came over and helped us for those two weeks and he's got the same problem. I'm going to go over and help him. And that, 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 that's all the, shall we say, the language and the fuel of friendships. It's, it's, not a, it's not necessarily a shallow love at all. It's a very common type of human love. It Can it be abused? Yes, it can be abused. But it's not the highest love. The highest love is a, is a, is a divine love. And no doubt you may know the word agape and the verb agapeo, agapao, sorry. And that is unconditional love. That is a divine love. That is the love that is mentioned of God's gracious love. Love given to the undeserving. God's love given to the unwilling. God's love given to the unlovable. That is God's gracious love. The love of grace, unconditional, without any condition from your side. Because Christ has fulfilled every condition. So what does that mean then if we consider that unconditional love? Well, it's very different from that other love. 
regardless of what the other person says to you, does to you, you love them anyway. That's difficult. If not nigh on impossible. And when the Lord says in his word, love thy neighbour, it's this love that he says. The first love, the conditional love, we can understand. We have neighbours, as I mentioned, in the examples. Bob does a favour for you, you do a favour for him. But Bob says no when you need his help. In fact, not only that, Bob borrowed something from you and is not giving it back. And every time you ask for it, he's got excuses. And not only that, but Bob has been guilty of gossiping about members of your family. Humanly speaking, Bob would be our enemy. And yet God says, love thy neighbor. And you say, oh, it's okay, but my neighbor has now become my enemy. He's in a different category. But then the Lord Jesus Christ says, love thine enemy. And it's the same unconditional love. Without any condition to be found in the other person, there is to be a constant and conditional love. And this is what the Lord commands you. In spite of her failings, in spite of her sins, in spite of the miscommunication, there is to be an unconditional love between husband and wife. And yet he speaks to the husband. Because if you love her unconditionally, you make it so much easier for her to submit to you. If she sees that, I said this to him, I lost my temper, I, I, I broke this, I, I damaged this. And yet I'm still to submit to him when he's angry, but then he's, by God's grace, he's not as angry. He's learning to control his temper. He is learning to love you unconditionally. How much sweeter and easier it is then to submit to such a man. Husbands, love your wives unconditionally. So in spite of her, you love her. So contrary to how we normally work. But this is God's command. Secondly, we see it's also a sacrificial love. Verse 25, again, we see husbands love your wives, unconditionally love them, even as Christ also loved unconditionally, the same word, the church, and gave himself for it. In that unconditional love, therefore, we see that there is also a sacrificial love. A sacrificial love. What do we know about Christ? That he sacrificed himself for the eternal good of his church. And then we consider what a church it was before Christ came and saved her and sprinkled her in his blood and washed her, as we read here, of water by the word. He brings the word and applies it, makes it alive and makes it not only a, sa a salvific word, a word that saves, but also a sanctifying word. Was she that lovable? No. Was she interested in him? No. And yet Christ gave himself for it. Sacrificing himself for the good of an undeserving church. And so this is the very heart of unconditional love. 
you're not necessarily getting anything back for it because it's unconditional and it might cost you it might cost you a lot it will because humanly speaking if you think about the Lord the Lord said no to himself and his own comforts and his own needs and said yes to the needs of his bride the church you also are to say no to yourself to learn to say no to yourself reading these scriptures calling upon the Lord for his help in that regard and of course in Christ's position he gave up much just to be able to sacrifice himself for his church he gave up much when he was incarnate as man when he became the God man and yet having done that work of the redeemer and having been exalted he has much more glory as the eternal God man but what he gave up to bring himself into that position to be born in the form of sinful man in the form of a rebel that hated God whose heart was hard against God that preferred darkness instead of light preferred sin instead of goodness as we are all without exception by nature and Christ came in that form and then the following two subpoints of what I'm thinking of now what I'd like to open up are, are really examples of this sacrificial love again as we think in Ephesians 5 and verse 26 two expressions of that so the self-sacrificial side is is an expression must be for unconditional love and let us see then what it means in the context of these verses two examples of self-sacrificial love verse 26 then we see the teaching love that he might sanctify and cleanse, cleanse it that is the church with the washing of water by the word touched upon it already but the lord expects and he exhausts exhorts husbands everywhere to rule the household not just with a leadership and they are to protect their family and they are to provide for them physically financially they put food on the table but also this as already mentioned they are to be the bible teacher of the family now that might not be naturally in you it may not be one of your natural talents that you've actually developed or even noticed maybe nobody's noticed but within the family it is the husband who is to be the bible teacher some people say the priest of the family but i i'm not a roman catholic i don't use that word you're to be the bible teacher being the head of the family you are to be the teacher of the family and if you find within yourself that you don't know much don't understand much there are many good helps to be found published uh, of course the greatest is the scriptures you take the scriptures this is what you read this is the food for the soul other things are merely helps and you are to bring the word of god so you're not to abdicate that god-given role to your wife now there are times that you might be have to be away from home for a few days or for a few weeks and then she will take your place as a necessity but it is to be your place on your return you are your wife's teacher you are as the lord grants you are your children's bible teacher that the word of god would daily get into their ears and into their understanding and by god's grace it would get into their hearts it is a responsibility 
But it is a wonderful privilege also. That here you have a soul and maybe more souls that are given to you to be fed by the word of God. And the only thing, you, it's, it's not in and of you. It's not you making up new stories or reminiscing about the past. You bring them the word of God, this means of grace. You, you lean heavily upon the word of God. Let the word of God do its work. As you open it up, as, as you read it, and maybe you get Matthew Henry or, or Calvin, and, and, and you use them to help you understand the word and and, and as you're feeding them, you're feeding your own soul. And let it not just be in a, as a teacher of doctrine, although doctrine is, is mightily important, but let it also be teaching by example. Teaching by example. Uh, as you read, as you search the Scriptures, as, you, as Christ is revealed to you in the Scriptures, uh, that it changes you. Because it is often said that the children may hear from their parents. Their parents say, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. And yet the parents are doing the exact opposite of what they're teaching. Do as I say, do as I say, but not as I do. That was the rebuke that Christ gave about the Pharisees. So don't be a Pharisee. They're, They're not our example. They're a bad example, but not our good example. But we must live by God's grace what we read and what we teach Because the family is a little church. The husband is to share the gospel to them all, to himself. There must be a faithful reading of the word. Because the word has power in and of itself. It has its own intrinsic authority and power. And you must just let the word do its work. And the author of the word, the Holy Ghost, to do his unmissable work. That you might sanctify and cleanse it, in your case hair, with the washing of water by the word. And then we have that, so we've had that teaching love and then finally that headship love. Again, we've, we've touched upon this. We see that in verse 23 it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Again, Christ-centered doctrine, as all doctrine should be. Christ-centered. And so finally we see the role of a covenant head to the wife and the children. Because you've entered into a new covenant. It's, I was going to say signed and sealed. It's almost signed, but it's certainly sealed. That you now have a lifelong covenantal commitment. And, and some people think that's a very hefty truth. But actually, it's something you can just rest on. God has bound our souls and our lives together. We are to stay together. There's no way out. And there are times when it might be great difficult times, great miscommunication, even the raising of voices and, 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 and the disquieting of hearts and, and, and that union that we're exhorted to might not seem as close as it should be and the hearts are not so warm. Remember this, there's no way out. God has bound you together for life. So that going through the difficult times, going through the valleys... There are times when you will be brought upon upon the mountains. Because there are difficulties, but you must, I was going to say, grit your teeth and bear it. No. Grit your teeth and pray it. Pray through it. That the Lord would help you. That the Lord would grant you that strength that you do need. Because although you are to be 100% submissive, although you are to be 100% unconditional in your love, neither of you have reached that. And I might be so bold as to ask the elderly husbands and wives amongst us. If you're honest, you haven't reached that. 
Although you be married 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. You can't do it on your own. But the Lord exhorted and therefore you were exhorted to seek the Lord. And seek his help. So the husband is exhorted to be like Christ to his wife. Why? Because that's exactly contrary to his fallen and sinful nature. That exhortation goes forth. The husband can dominate. The husband can intimidate. The husband can be aggressive, therefore. Or he can be, worst of all, maybe say, passive-aggressive. You don't see it on the outside, but the anger is on the inside. And he may love his wife conditionally. Loving her and being nice to her and being agreeable to her when she is nice and agreeable and kind. Cooks his favorite food, does what he thinks is nice. And then he loves her. A husband can also give up on leadership and headship. It forces the woman to take the lead so that neither of them are being Christ-like. He's not leading, she's not submissive. Giving up that responsibility to being the Bible teacher at home, being careless in his duties, being lazy in his duty, in his God-given duty. But as I've mentioned, these standards for both husband and wife, they are heaven high, they are beyond us. And yet God exhorts us to do them. And so we need the help of God himself. What is impossible for us is not impossible for God. And if God exhorts us, commands us, then we are to go to him for that, that help and call upon him to do that which he demands of us, he commands of us. In the practical matters of married life, yes, that's the context that we're considering, but also in the eternal matters of salvation, calling upon him as he has commanded us to. Calling upon him, confessing, repenting, pleading, following things that are beyond us that are impossible for us and yet the apostle also says that I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me he's not relying upon his own strength and his own ability he's not as it were just gritting his teeth and bearing it and doing his best because your tank is very quickly empty if it even have a drop within it but through Christ calling upon God to help you in your need. The great leveler, the submissive wife, the loving husband, and the abiding union, time is against us. But let me just briefly say, I said much of this in the introduction anyway. Firstly, we see that there's a separate family in verse 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. How can the husband... Join unto his wife. How can there be that new union, that new marriage union, that union that, that says something of Christ in his church? How can you do that if you're still at half at home? You have new priorities. Up to now, the most important woman in your life has been your mother, and she will still be a very important woman in your life. And a good mother is a blessed thing. See, not to ignore your mother by any means but for a new family to unite means a separation from the parental family priorities change as I said with your mother the fifth commandment changes 
You are establishing your own family. So where it says, honour thy father and mother, that continues, honour thy father and thy mother. But you're no longer under his direct headship because you start a new covenantal headship. There is not to be that obedience to your father. You're your own man. You're your own husband, your own father, as it were. You have your own individuality. Never be contrary to the word of God, of course. Give great honour where there is good advice. Listen and follow it. Don't be a fool. But you are moving away from the parental home as is in Naomi. But it's important that that happens. That's why the Lord says it. He says it in Genesis. He says it here. He says it in Mark 10. He says it in other places. For this cause, for marriage, for the union of a man and a woman, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined unto his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. So the one leads to the other. There are some people that will spend an awful lot of time still at their parental home, whether it be the wife or the husband. And that's wrong. It's contrary to the teaching of the Lord. Yes, visit. You know, don't be a stranger. But there is a new household. There is a new family. So a separate family, yes. One flesh, the Lord also says. There has to be a union. A union on many different levels, as we've considered in the introduction. But that true union is only possible when there is submission. When there is headship. When there is a, a complement. When there is that, that, that godly leadership of the man, the submission of the woman. And then... We have that which the Lord has determined and the Lord's ways and his works and his word are perfect. And therefore his, his direction in this case is so important. It's also this we could say, it's only by coming in union together as a man and a woman that you actually find your true identity. Identity is a confused matter these days in so many areas. What's a Canadian? What, what, what's a man? What's a woman? And the, the rest of the satanic nonsense that goes forth in the world. But being a, a husband is part of who you are when you're developing in there. Once you have a wife, of course. But being a husband, so being a, you've, been a, you've been a son, you are still a son. Being a son, you are growing to be a man. And now you're married, you're, you've become a, a husband. And as God grants, you may become a father. And all these are God-given identities. And it is in those identities that you are to grow and to flourish. No longer a, a bachelor. No longer a single man. Just as you're now a man and those things of childhood are to be left behind, so are the things of a single man and of a bachelor to be left behind. Don't, don't, don't look back. Don't think, oh, oh, those times when I could spend all those evenings on my own and free or whatever. You've had that time. Now, you're, now you can grow up. Now you can be a husband. Yeah? And she will help you in that regard. Because it is not good that Willem was alone. And now God has given you a wife and you are to grow up to be the man, the husband of that family. And you must be so that there will be a true union. But that union is in the God-given Identity, And it points, of course, to the mystical union. That mystical union that we see in the Scriptures. And there is much to be said. But let me just say with verse 32, this is a great mystery. Now the 
Bible explains what that word mystery means. It's got nothing to do with a crime scene. It's got nothing to do with some work of fiction. Mystery means this in the scriptures, that it is a truth that was hidden by God and must be revealed by God because man would never find it out on his own. And so the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Christ, the mystery, the various mysteries that are mentioned, and here we have the mystery of marriage. The true meaning, the true spiritual meaning of marriage, what every married man and woman in whatever culture, at whatever time, has always pointed to, be they a non-Christian culture, be they an atheistic culture, and yet each and every one of them was pointing to Christ and the church. Husbands, are you pointing to Christ with your wife? Wives, are you pointing to Christ with your lives? That's the reason for it. But let us just mention two things. We have the external covenant. Because we understand that we receive the covenant uh, covenant sign and seal through baptism. Says that we have become part of God's people. It's the sign. And within that sign there is the, the promise of the triune God that it would be sealed to you. It will be sealed to the elect. But it is the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And yet we know, as in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's the same. That there is those that have an external covenantal relationship with God. The, the visible church, we could say. All those that say that they believe or, or they believe that this is true. And that is an external covenantal relationship which the Lord takes very seriously we would be remiss to think that that is not important because it is not the eternal covenant of grace where your soul is saved and you're found to be in Christ and in full union with him in that way which is our second uh, sub point here that's crucial but the covenant that God has with his church in general is also vital we know that the Lord declares that not all Israel is Israel. We know, therefore, that not all of church is church. There is a difference. There are those who die in their sins. There are those that, by God's grace, die in Christ. We don't make the difference. God does. We know in the Old Testament there were many that were disobedient to the word of God in the law and by the prophets. And yet we know, if we know anything about the Old Testament, that God sent prophets to rebuke the whole nation. All of his people. Even when the northern kingdom became officially apostate, separated under Jeroboam, and established a mockery of Jerusalem worship, set up idolatrous worship, mixing man's ideas with a bit of what God has said, And that God was wroth with their kings and with their people. And never once, never once did they experience times of refreshing or revival or reformation in that northern kingdom. And yet God sent prophets. Sent prophets to preach the gospel. Why? Because he had a covenantal desire that even they who had left, who called themselves Israel, 
that he did not break. He's not a covenant breaker. Though they be covenant breakers, God is not a covenant breaker. And sending his prophets to do what? To preach the gospel to them. To turn and put their trust in the Lord. Old Testament words for repent and believe on Christ. That's what they were to do. Because of that covenantal relationship that they had by circumcision with God. But again, this all points not just to the external covenant, but to the eternal covenant when we consider this. A great mystery, and I speak of Christ and the church. Christ is the husband, and the church is the wife. Or we should say that Christ is the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. That gospel picture, covenantal picture, that we see between Christ and the church of the elect. An eternal covenant. The everlasting love and faithfulness of Christ to his bride. His headship, his teaching, his unconditional love to her. Just hinted at in human marriage. And he poured out his lifeblood upon the cross in order to save his ungrateful, unwilling, unlovable bride. And all that we've read and seen in verses 22 to 31, all of that point to this relationship of Christ and his church. The person and work of Christ, the work of redemption, the the redeemed of God, all pictured just in you two. A gospel mirror. So in closing, we have very briefly considered what marriage is in God's eyes. And that is the definition of marriage. The Lord doesn't ask us for any creativity to, to, to think, oh, well, we can, we can change marriage. We can change the definition of marriage. We can live the marriage in a different way. Living apart and yet together are all this other nonsense and wickedness in the world. God invented marriage. God determines how marriage is to be. And therefore, we must all bow our heads before King Jesus And yet if you have not obeyed the gospel command when we consider this together as repeatedly goes forth in the scriptures of the Old Testament and the New Testament even considering that first call of God going out towards Adam where art thou? And then a few verses later we hear the first gospel message the proto-evangelium in verse 15 where that promise is of the seed of the woman would bruise, and that is a crushing bruise, the head of the seed of the serpent. And I will put enmity. I will make you enemies. There will be an eternal division between thee and the woman, he speaks to the serpent, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shall bruise his heel. Reference to the sacrifice upon the cross. And so, we see then that gospel command to turn from sin and to turn to the Lord, to return to the Lord, come back from your backslidings, from living this church life and yet having no faith, not believing the word, not trusting in the word, not looking unto God, happy in a dead and dry religion and expecting God That he will do all things. And he will do all things. He has done all things. 
He gives us the means of grace that we can come under. His spirit is present with us. The promises are in there. And then the command goes out. And of all the commands of God that we think that we can fulfill, we think that we cannot repent and believe. And is it true that the repentance and belief is something that we do on our own? No. It's the work of the Holy Ghost. Also, we can't repent and believe. Indeed. And yet there is a responsibility upon every hearer of the gospel to obey the command of the gospel to repent and believe. And in our little minds, that seems to be contradictory, but it isn't, because God has brought you under the means of grace. There is power in the gospel word itself. There is power because the Spirit of God wrote this gospel word, and then he says, forsake not the gathering together of yourselves. Hear the word and obey it. And that should be the heart. I'll obey it. Repent. So, well, I don't feel like repenting. What's your feelings got to do with it? Seriously, where in the scriptures does God determine his law? These are my laws. These are my commandments. If you feel like it. That's contrary to the scriptures. That means that your emotions are higher than the authority of God. That's called blasphemy. Now, we come back to the truth. You're dead in trespasses and sins. You can do nothing unless God move first, and he has. Christ, first of all, says that it is finished. He has done all things. He has met every condition. He has done everything for his church. Its church can do nothing. There's no preparatory work or work of preparation that you can do. We're not Methodists. We're not Roman Catholics. We're not Greek Orthodox. We don't think we do a bit and then God does a bit. It's all of God. And God says, repent and believe. Is there to be a desire, though? So we're not talking about feelings. We're talking about a desire. Is there a will to obey the word of God? Then there is to be repentance. Coming to God, admitting your inability and even unwillingness. But having the desire that your sins will be forgiven you, having a desire that you would hear the gospel, and therefore to obey that command to repent and believe. Knowing full well that in and of yourself you cannot repent and believe, but you are to obey. You think you can keep the Sabbath, but disobey the gospel command. You can't do either of them. None of the Ten Commandments can you keep. The gospel command you cannot keep. And yet as sinners, we, are, we stand responsible and guilty before God to obey his word. So what should that do to you? Bring you to your knees before God in prayer. And not asking for a new heart. Not asking that you can have a look into his private business to see if you're on the elect's list. But to do what he says. To call upon the name of the Lord to repent and believe. That's what the Lord says. And in truly, genuinely repenting and believing, you may discover that that is a work of God. I can't turn around and say, don't repent and believe. But I would be found contradicting the word of God. And I'd have no fear of God. I can only be an ambassador and say, this is what my king tells me to say. 
Whether you understand it, whether you have the logical links or not, or whether you must just admit, I don't know how the Lord does it. And indeed, how can we preach the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man? Well, we can do so because the Bible tells us so. And it also says that it's all of God. Yes, so we preach that as well. And that man is responsible before God. We must preach as, as Christ preached. We must preach as the apostles preached. We must exhort and warn as the prophets did. And when the people said to the Lord Jesus and they saw that this, this tower had fallen and, and many people had been crushed, you know, were these people who suffered this, this disaster, were they more wicked than others? And maybe opening up an interesting theological discussion about the elect and the reprobate and about the different degrees of punishment according to our sins because everyone will be judged according to the sins they've committed in this body no he gave them that gospel rebuke that they were to repent lest they likewise perish and so with the words of Christ upon my lips that you are to repent, lest you likewise perish, because if you are not in union with Christ, you are still in union with your sin, and you are in union with the devil. Be you so a good, church-going, reformed Christian. If you're not in union with Christ, you have that union with death. And that is the truth, even unto damnation. And everlasting destruction. But the gospel through Isaiah says this. In chapter 55 and verses 6 to 7. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the righteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him. And to our God. For he will abundantly pardon Amen.